Today's reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, and chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a fast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. The word of the Lord. So we're continuing this morning, this fall. Um, our sermon series has started our series of readings that come from the narrative lectionary. And the narrative lectionary is uh, a reading uh, schedule that was developed by Luther Seminary as a four-year um, cycle. Um, and, and, and churches throughout time have used lectionaries, uh, a list of readings that they follow. Typically, uh, it's over a course of three years, but the narrative lectionary takes four years. And the point of the narrative lectionary is to make sure that in our reading and our preaching as a church, we are hitting all of the, the big, major stories in Scripture. And not just taking sort of these isolated texts and, and taking them as, as in little nibbles, but that we're getting sort of the grand and sweeping narrative of Scripture, and we're hitting all the big, important stories. And, and, and this is especially true of our passage today, the story of the first Passover. 
Now, psychologists, um, when they talk ab ab about memory and human memory uh, and the biases, the cognitive biases we have uh, uh, towards uh, certain things that come in a list in a particular order, they talk about primacy bias and recency bias. And so recency bias is we remember the last thing, uh, you know, we tend to remember the last thing we heard. But primacy bias is we also tend to remember the first things that we hear in a given sequence. And experience, the, important of, the importance of firsts, experience plays this out. It shows it to be true. We, we, we can all remember our firsts, right? Our, our first day of school, we remember that. Our, our first job that we held down, a, a, a first kiss, a first heartbreak, uh, the, the first basket or goal that you scored, uh, your first car that you owned, the first house you lived in, the first apartment, the first roommate, your first best friend, your first night sleeping away from home. Firsts matter. Firsts are memorable. Firsts are an important part of, um, of our identity, the, the, the story that we tell about ourselves and our lives. And so as we get to um, our passage today, it's a story of firsts. Now, we've jumped, uh, we've only gone 12 or 13 chapters in Scripture last week. We ended with uh, Joseph and Genesis chapter 50 and that great word about God's providence where he says to his brothers, uh, you know, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, for the saving, the preservation of many lives. But here we are, we're, we're, we're 400 years, more than 400 years in the future. And the Israelites, the children of Jacob. They're now slaves in the land where their ancestor Joseph had been the prime minister and had really, uh, you know, saved that empire, preserved that empire in great famine. And so he had been prime minister. They had moved there. They had prospered. They had flourished. And now they're slaves. And so we go, what happened? Exodus 1 answers that question, what happened, using an admirable economy of words. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. So this new king, this new pharaoh, lacked a historical memory. When that happens, when, when people forget history, disaster follows. Now let that be a, a word of caution to us. I think we too live in a day and age where our historical memory is badly impoverished, which leads us to say, think, and do foolish things. Historical memory protects us against the idolatrous temptation we suffer, uh, this tendency towards uh, what's called presentism, the belief that all that really matters and, and the only standard that matters by which we can judge and evaluate everything is where we stand in this present moment. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery, but it's presentism. It's, it's the lack of a historical memory. And the whole point of what we read in chapters 12 and 13 here in Exodus about the first Passover and the rituals surrounding it, they are to cut against that tendency that was exhibited by Pharaoh to forget incredibly important, vital things and thus invite the catastrophic consequences that follow. You know, never forget, it's a hashtag, it's, it's a cliche, but it's a slogan that contains much truth, especially when we're dealing with the events of sacred history that we encounter in our passage today. And so as we examine this first Passover, I, we're going to be looking at three firsts, two maybe smaller firsts and, and, and one big first. The, the, there's the two smaller firsts, I'll say the first month and, 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 and the first congregation, but then there's one big first, the firstborn. So let's get to these firsts, but first things first. Uh, 
the Passover story and to just set this in our own context to invite us to hear it in a new way. It's the story of the 10th plague. And so that God sent to Egypt because Pharaoh would, you know, not let the people go and worship. And, and, and so this is a story about God's activity um, in and, and through a time of plague. And so we too are God's people living in the midst of a plague. Again, uh, we are living in a time where cries for freedom are being heard. Again, in a time where we cannot worship as we would like. And so with all that being said, I hope we can hear what might be a familiar story in a new way. All right, so now first, 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 the first month. So our passage begins, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, this might seem like sort of a throwaway introduction line, but this is a vital point um, that God is giving to Moses and Aaron because how we keep track of time, how we measure time, how we structure time, it, it says something significant. It even does something significant in us. Now, most of us are used to living by multiple calendars in our, our day-to-day life. We have the sacred calendar and the secular calendar. And the same was true of the Israelites because, you know, technically, uh, the first month of the year, if you know any Jewish people or are vaguely aware of how Jewish people um, celebrate the year, Rosh Hashanah does not take place, which is the Jewish New Year, does not take place at the same time as the Passover. No, not, not at all. It's actually in the fall. It's about six months later. That is, the, uh, that is the sort of secular New Year, if you can call it such a thing. But here God is telling Moses and Aaron that this is to be their first month. And so we, 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 though, we know what it's like to live by multiple calendars at the same time. There's the, the secular calendar that we live by where, you know, the year starts on January 1st. And for Minnesotans, uh, and for many of us living in the Northern Hemisphere, that is in the deep, dark, cold of winter. Uh, and so I think that maybe our New Year beginning in that time, especially for us in the bleakest and the darkest and coldest part of winter, you know, I think that that explains some things about our culture here in Minnesota. But then there's the, the, the school calendar year, which is another very important and influential calendar. And, and, and even if you don't have kids or you don't have kids in school anymore, I think the rhythm of our, our national life sort of goes by that calendar as well. We think of the year in terms of, of falls and of summers and of, and of winter breaks and spring breaks. I think it's an even more influential calendar than our official one. And then there's the personal calendars we have, the idiosyncratic ones, where we have the birthdays we celebrate and the anniversaries we celebrate and the holidays and the celebrations where we do them just so. For me, there was just a very important um, date on my calendar this past week, actually two days this past week. Prime Day uh, was very important, very influential personal holiday for me that, that we celebrate. And then in the church, there's, there's the church calendar. And the church new year, it starts with Christmas, and then it, it climaxes in Easter, and it's surrounded by these times of preparation, Advent, and of Lent, and then, and then ordinary time. And so every year there's a rhythm to church life that centers around the central events of our faith, the, the incarnation, and the events of Christ's passion and resurrection. And so as, as a church, that's how we mark and measure time. And so how we measure time and name time and live in time, it provides us with, with a rhythm and a meaning for our lives. 
And I think one of the greatest challenges we're experiencing now, living in what uh, people are calling, you know, quarantine, uh, which has been the last, you know, seven plus uh, months, is this profound sense of uh, loss of rhythm. We feel disjointed, out of whack, uh, adrift. You know, think about all of the things that you used to celebrate and take for granted that you haven't been able to do this past year. Think about things you've had to, to set aside. I think of myself and, you know, uh, the weekly rhythm of coming to church. I, I, I think about uh, sending the kids back to school. I think even about our trip to the North Shore that was disrupted. I think about the weddings I was supposed to attend and officiate that had to get canceled. There's just this sense of being lost, set in a time that is not really a time we want to be living in. And so I think what our passage can teach us here and what it can reawaken in us is the need we have, the the need we have to be situated in sacred time, in God's time, in God's rhythm for our lives, where, where how we measure and use and celebrate time are oriented around God's activity in the world. So in Exodus right here, God is providing his people with a yearly celebration that that is a a reminder of their, their new beginning, their new identity as free people so that they would never forget. And he's provided the church with a, with a weekly rhythm where we gather each Sunday as the resurrection day and we, 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 we mark our years with the great celebrations of Christmas and Easter and we prepare and reflect on the meaning of these events with Advent and Lent. And we look forward to, to these each and every year. And so our passage reminds us today in this great season of disorientation, the need to reorient ourselves in sacred time and to never take for granted the sacred rhythms that don't just remind us of who we are because of what God has done, but are actually part of God working in us to renew us, to restore us, to remake us. So that's the first month, but, but then we get the first congregation. Now, this is a small point, but I think it, this is a very important point to make. It's just an observation I want to share that right after the Lord states, okay, this is going to be the first month, then he says to Moses and Aaron, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for each household. So here we have another important first, one that we can easily just pass over, pun intended. This is the first time in Scripture, that God refers to to the children of Israel, the people of Israel, the sons of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as a congregation. So Passover, the Passover celebration, is what constitutes Israel as more than a loose confederation of tribes. And it provides them with their primary collective identity as a worshiping community. And so for the Israelites, their, their unity their sense of cohesion, their, 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 their collective identity is as worshipers and participants in the sacred rituals that constitute and remind them of their freedom according to what God is about to do for them to redeem them from slavery. And so what this shows us here at Passover is that God is a congregation maker. That's what he does. His great actions in history, they cut against our tendency towards tribal identities And instead, they focus us, laser sharp focus us on what creates our collective identity, worship of him because of what he has done for us. That's the most important thing about us. The same is true in the New Testament. We see this play out. So God is a congregation maker here at Passover. Well, Jesus, you know, he's resurrected. The first thing he does at Pentecost is he creates 
He sends the Holy Spirit to create a new congregation of both Jew and Gentile from every nation under heaven. So God is the one who calls people to worship, calls people to enter into a congregation to become a church. And I think at this particular moment in our national life, I believe that this message of unity, this anti-tribal message, is one that we desperately need to hear and to heed. And may God forgive us for the ways we have sowed and, and cultivated these seeds of distrust and disunity and dissension. I know, of course, it's always someone else's fault, but we can also look in the mirror. All right, so we've got the first month. We've got the first congregation. But now I want to get to the heart of it all. And I'm only going to be able to spend too brief an amount of time on this. But this is the firstborn. Because the 10th plague is the plague of the firstborn. It's where the, the destroyer passes over the homes of the Israelites that are marked with the blood of the Lamb. Visiting firstborn, uh, visiting death upon the firstborn, both human and livestock of the Egyptian households. And so regardless, we can say, of our joy that we would feel at the Israelites for being released from slavery. I mean, that is great good news. And as much as we can think, well, if this happened to Pharaoh's household or the, household, you know, the households of the Egyptian leaders, that would be a good thing. They'd be getting their comeuppance. I think our modern sensibilities can't help but be troubled by the pain that, that brought upon every Egyptian household. And we're further maybe confused by these words and confounded by them at the beginning of Exodus 13, where it says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. What's going on here? Now, a few things, but, but one of the implications of this, the firstborn, and the death of the firstborn, and the redemption of the firstborn, uh, belonging to God, is, is what one scholar uh, uh, John D. Levinson, he was, at, uh, he was at Harvard, and he wrote this, this book in the early 1990s that, that was influential. And he argued that, per, persuasively, he argued that behind this idea about the firstborn belonging to God is, is actually the idea of child sacrifice. In fact, he argues that one of the central themes of the Bible, both of the Old and New Testaments, but we especially see it in, in the Old Testament, is this transformation of the idea of child sacrifice. And, 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 and from an actual thing that people would do to, to a, a theological uh, reality. And, and, and so he says that one of the central stories of the Bible is, is the story of, of God um, saving, redeeming, and rescuing people from sacrifice, children from sacrifice, and bringing them back to life, restoring the firstborn. And so along with this idea of, of sacrifice and this transforming of the idea of sacrifice is the concept of substitution. And so since the life of the firstborn belongs to God, and in order for that life to be spared, another life must be given in its place. That's at the heart of the Passover story. The destroyer passes over the homes of the Israelites because they're already marked with death by the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb is a replacement. It's a substitute for the blood of the firstborn. It's that blood that provides protection. It provides salvation to each family eating inside. And so the first Passover night, there was going to be death marking every house, either a dead lamb or a dead son. And the death and, and resurrection of the firstborn, it's also the story of, of Abraham and Isaac. God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son, and it's only at the very last moment, right, when the knife is in Abraham's hand and, and he's about to plunge it down, that the angel stops Abraham and a, a ram is provided instead 
And even the story that we read last week, the story of Joseph, it's a story of death and resurrection. Not of the firstborn son in this case, but of, of, of Jacob's favorite son, his favorite son, Joseph. His life, Joseph's life, is spared when a goat is killed in his place whose blood is sprinkled on the dream coat in order to deceive Jacob. And the culmination of this story doesn't come for many years until Jacob, who believed that his son was dead and who mourned his son, saw that, that Joseph was alive. And he says, my son has been brought back to life. So this Passover story, this story of substitution of the firstborn in order to bring about the saving of God's people is, of course, the story of Jesus as well. The Lamb of God, John says, who takes away the sin of the world. And he's the beloved son, not just the firstborn, but the only begotten who was not spared. And it's no accident that Jesus chose the Passover festival as the time of his death, the backdrop against which he would give his life. And the night he was betrayed, he gathered in the upper room with his disciples to celebrate a very strange Passover meal with them. Now we read in, in the Gospels that they ate bread, they ate the unleavened bread, and that they drank wine. But if we read the passage today, we see that the most important element of the Passover meal is missing. What's missing was the Passover lamb. The implication being that Jesus himself was the lamb that was to be slain. The lamb without spot or blemish. The lamb whose blood would cover the doorposts. The lamb whose life would be given as a substitute, not just for the firstborn, but for all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve marked with it. So this is, is the deep and even the disturbing logic of Passover, which is the deep meaning fulfilled by Christ. His life for ours. His blood covers us and it purifies us and it is the means of our being liberated from slavery to sin and being spared from the destroyer. So that's the ultimate meaning of this first blood shed on Passover. And there's much more we can say and many other ways that we can make sense of it or try to make sense of it all. But more than making any sense of it, the important thing is remembering the act itself. Because at the end of our reading in chapter 13, you know, where, where, where the Israelites are being told, God is telling Moses, you know, how they are continue, to continue to celebrate and to commemorate the Passover feast. He says, in the future, you shall tell your children on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So the importance of celebrating is to pass on the memory of that event to the next generation. So that they might not forget and we might not forget who we are and where we came from and who God made us to be. In other words, we are to do this in remembrance of me. And I close with these words from, from Revelation, which are recited and sung by the heavenly chorus and the heavenly congregation where they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So let those praises be ever on our lips and let us never forget. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.